Thanks, Mark. Uh, I'll just add my welcome. I'm Scott. Uh, glad to see all of you in this room. So many people in this room today. Very cool to see. And those of you joining us online, thanks for being with us today. It's a big day for Menlo Church today. Um, that's right. After uh, over two years without a senior pastor, um, we are ready to turn the page and start a new chapter here at Menlo. And I am thrilled, and I know you all are excited as well. Um, Phil Eubank uh, was unanimously selected by our search team and uh, our session and we are uh, very excited for him. And I hope that you've been able to see in the emails that we've been sending out, the videos that have been part of that, looked on the webpage, gotten to know Phil and his beautiful family through all those means. Um, and I know you're gonna continue to get to know him, but uh, we wanna invite you, a uh, big thing today, you may have heard about this one o'clock meeting today. Anybody heard about that? Uh, where uh, we're gonna have the privilege as a congregation to formally elect Phil as our next senior pastor. And so um, we are bribing you with tacos after the service. Just hang out, we'll feed you. And, uh, and for those who are covenant partners, that's how we refer to members here, uh, we get a chance to vote at one o'clock. So I want you to come back for that. But um, uh, our search team who worked tirelessly, so thankful for them and uh, all the work that they did and the patience they had and the prayers that they, they put up. Um, they wrote this about, about Phil. They said, Phil has a pastor's heart, a teacher's voice, and a leader's vision. And I would say in the time I've gotten to know Phil, those are all really true. And along with those things, uh, Phil is one of the most grounded, unpretentious, and thoughtful people I've ever met. Um, he has a love for scriptures. He has a boundless energy. He has a passion and vision for what God can do in the communities uh, that we serve, that we live in, uh, what God can do here. And it's, it's, it's beautiful and it's wonderful. And you're going to hear more about that today. And uh, beyond all that, uh, he's already becoming a great friend. So can we give a warm, rousing Menlo welcome to Phil Eubank? That was rousing. Well done. Um, they do that for you every week, right? Just like what they do. No, yeah, actually, yeah. no. That's, uh, so I have to work on that. But uh, um, hey, Phil, I, I know that search team did so much work, and you, you got all the questions and were vetted so thoroughly. But there was one group that didn't get to ask a lot of questions, and that was our four- and five-year-olds. Sure. And so uh, I just I got there's a few questions we got to get through before, just so we can get a good vote today. Um, and these are from our, our four- and five-year-olds. And the first one is, um, have you ever touched a shark and then been chased by it? That's a good question. Well, if it counts that I have a three-year-old who has pretended to be a shark, then yes to both. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Great. Yep. Uh, good to know. Yeah, we live by the ocean here. You know, sure. Colorado, a little different, but uh, sharks yeah. are, are a problem. So we take that seriously. Uh, okay, here's a classic. Uh, who is your favorite Disney princess? Yeah, that's good. So uh, earlier on, I said Cinderella, and I said it was because uh, she reminded me of my wife. I was told before this service, actually the correct answer from my wife is Sleeping Beauty. So uh, Sleeping Beauty is the answer, because I guess that prince's name is Philip. And so, yeah, yeah. Okay. And also my wife enjoys sleeping. So win-win, yeah. You know, you didn't need to say that, that part, but uh, you know, yeah. we, we tossed that softball right yeah, to you. Yeah, and sure. you're just, okay. 
Um, okay, here's a philosophical question. Uh, is Goofy a dog? I'd say why not? Yeah, why sure. not? Why yeah, not? sure. Yep. Why not? Okay, and here's a, an athletic question, because that's important to us too. Um, can you run faster than a cheetah? Is the cheetah alive? <laughs> I think so. Uh, yeah. Probably not then. Yeah, yeah probably not. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Phil, uh, in all seriousness, I think our, our four and five-year-olds are on board. We're all on Perfect. board. Thanks so much. Um, we're Thanks. so excited that you're here and so looking forward to all that you're going to bring to our church. Can we give another welcome to Phil as he preaches for us? Uh, good morning, Menlo Church. I'm so, so glad to be with you. What an honor and a privilege it is to be here and to consider doing ministry together from San Mateo to Mountain View to Saratoga, San Jose, right here in Menlo Park. Some of you have actually traveled to be in this room, so thank you so much. It really is a tremendous honor to be with you. And for folks watching online uh, all around the world, that's a pretty special part of our moment, too. I think it's appropriate before we get started to just take a moment and thank and let you know how well served you have been by the Senior Pastor Search Committee and your session. Um, it is unbelievable, the leaders, the men and women that make up those groups here at Menlo Church. Can we just thank them real quick for all the work they put in? Now, my family is with me today, and I'll talk a little bit more about them in a few minutes, but thank you so much. Many of you have been following along online and checking stuff out that's been released uh, to let you know a little bit more about us. Some of you have reached out and just said hello via email or literally every potential social media platform available. So uh, thank you for doing that also. Over the next few minutes, here's what I'd love to do. I'd love to share a story from God's Word with you. I'd love to share a little bit of our story with you. And then I would like to invite you to potentially be a part of writing the next chapter of Menlo Church's story with us. Now, I hope this is something that maybe for you is a day or a few minutes together that's going to linger, that's going to stick with you. And I'd love to give you a question. A question as we get started that I hope bothers you. I hope it is spiritually irritating. I hope it's a question you're talking about over tacos later. I hope it's a question you're thinking about at work this week or with your family. And the question is this, what if I was made for this moment? What if I was made for this moment? Now, before we get started, I'm going to pray for us. And uh, if you maybe, you've probably never heard or seen me speak, but uh, before I speak, I pray kneeling. And the reason that I do that is to remind all of us that there is only one Savior for Menlo Church. I'm not him, and he never left. Would you pray with me? God, thank you. Thank you so much for uh, this place and the people who have made up the incredible legacy of faith here. Thank you for the shoulders of giants that we stand on today and every day. Would you help us, God, to walk faithfully in their shadow? Would you help us to see the path you have before us? That, God, the best for this place and this region because of it is ahead. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as uh, I share this story that we're going to dive in together with, I want to let you know we're going to spend some time in Nehemiah chapter 1. And if you're unfamiliar with the Bible uh, or this specific author, it's a part of the history of God's people Israel, and it's recorded by a prophet in the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, about a moment a few hundred years before Jesus was born. 
Now, around 600 BC, the Babylonian Empire was tearing through the known world and took the very best of God's people out of Judah and Jerusalem to shore up their own knowledge and experience for their own empire. You may have heard of some of the best and brightest that they took, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and... Yeah, and if you're an unchurched person, you're like, how did they all know that? It's a thing we all grew up with. They're big words, I know. Well, about 70 years later, the Persians are now leading the way in the region, and they're wondering why all these foreigners are taking up their resources. And so they start to send people back home to their nations and regions of origin, including sending Jews back to Judah and Jerusalem specifically. And the story that I'm about to read Uh, It happens about 90 years after the Jewish people had moved home, and things have stalled, and it's hard to fight for what's right. It's hard to stay tied to the truth. And if I'm honest, what was really hard is it was hard to not just let yourself slowly roll back with a devolving, destructive culture. And before you ask, no, I'm not talking about 2022, although it feels similar, doesn't it? The story begins this way. It says... The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. So we can sort of already see in this passage that we are talking about a specific historic moment. Nehemiah gets a report back about how things are going in Jerusalem. And as far as we can tell throughout the book of Nehemiah, he's actually never been there. And so he has a a loyalty to, an affinity towards a place that he's never actually been. And here he gets to know how things are really going. This is how the report went. It said, and they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. See, it starts with the report. And the situation was worse than Nehemiah imagined. See, the wall, which was made of stone, would have been the only thing that guarded a city in this time, and it had been broken down. The gates, made of wood, had been burned to the ground. No one in this moment would have blamed Nehemiah for giving up, for closing the app, for scrolling past it, for changing the channel, but he doesn't. Actually, there was something about this that broke Nehemiah's heart. He could remember the stories that he had heard. He had memories of, even from other people, what it had looked like. And even though he had every excuse to move on, to give up, to not care, he chose to anyway. And then we go from a report to a response. And honestly, I resonate so deeply with Nehemiah's feelings and thoughts in this moment because I feel that same way sometimes about the church in America today. The church and how it's viewed in our culture, even over the last couple years. We've seen the church in America, we've seen some of the very best be brought out of the last couple years, and we have seen some of the very worst. How we have become marginalized as followers of Jesus, often, unfortunately, because of some of the behaviors of Christians themselves. But it doesn't have to be that way. 
And just as an aside, I want to say to you, Menlo Church, that many of you over the last couple years, in a moment and a place more broadly in church culture where it can be so difficult to lament, process, and feel the kind of grief and pain we see from Nehemiah, you have modeled these things so incredibly well. And you have stayed faithful through chaos and challenge and crisis in a way that is so unique and a gift to far more people than you realize. Now, the passage continues this way from Nehemiah's, Nehemiah's response. It says, uh, and I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. So we go from Nehemiah's response to a reminder. See, Nehemiah, he gives us a look into his prayer journal. He tells us how he's praying to God in this moment. And he does in prayer sometimes what you and me do. If you're a follower of Jesus, maybe you've done this before, where you're in crisis or difficulty and you remind God of who God is. And just so you know, like he doesn't need it. He hasn't forgotten, but he's okay. If that's where we are, he says, God, I just want to remind you. I know things are pretty busy right now. You may have forgotten, but when moments like this show up, this is who you are and this is what you're supposed to do. And so in moments like this, Nehemiah, he seems like a pretty incredible guy. He seems like what could possibly be wrong in his life, but he leads with repentance and confession. He's actually taking a posture of repentance for the sin of all of Israel. He isn't taking the position that it's all his fault, but he is taking the position that it is his responsibility. I don't know about you, but uh, my heart has broken for what church people across the country have looked like and how we have responded at times in the worst of it over the last couple years, right? Global pandemic, political divisiveness, entrenched opinions, compassionless conviction, convictionless compassion. We see it everywhere. People have too often settled for the right position and compromised the wrong posture over and over again. And here's what I know. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are getting judged. I am getting judged by the worst of it, not the best of it. See, Nehemiah, he's just owning that. He owns his own sin. He handles what really we see great leaders do over and over again. He takes responsibility and he models sharing credit. He's not consumed with how to place blame. He's not saying, if he's, he's like looking at this moment, he's saying, okay, God, I'm not saying that I'm perfect. As a matter of fact, if I'm made for this moment, then God, it must be that I need grace, forgiveness from you. And he doesn't just live there. As a matter of fact, he owns his own sin and the sin of his family too. That's so hard because what's really easy to do instead of that is to look around and say, well, um, yeah, there's some things in my life that aren't perfect, but look at her, look at him, look at that group of people, look how they've responded. At least I'm not. And that sort of finger pointing that's become so popular, Nehemiah works so hard to avoid. His prayer continues this way. He says, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, 
Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. He elaborates about their disobedience to the commandments that they knew. See, we spend lots of time today in modern Christianity wondering, well, did God really say that? Does he really mean that? Do we still really have to do that? But they had absolutely no confusion about the boundaries that God had placed on their life for his people. And all of it comes down to this principle of repentance, right? All of it comes down to this idea. And repentance is one of those words that I think is so important for us to define. I want to share a definition with you. You may have heard of this person's name before. It comes from Dallas Willard. Have you ever heard of him? I'm going to take that as a yes. It says, repentance is not beating your head on the floor or feeling bad about your sins. It's to rethink your thinking so as to change the way you've been thinking and acting. We repent in light of the gospel of Jesus. See, we don't repent as some sort of theological exercise based on our feelings or our current life circumstances, but rather a supernatural response to the hope of what Jesus has already done. Nehemiah, communicating a sense of that, even foreshadowing a sense of that in the Hebrew Scriptures, continues. It says, they are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. See, Nehemiah, he gets to the end of this prayer, to the end of this section of his prayer journal, and he's basically begging God, saying, if this is still how you work, and I'm pretty confident it is, would you give me blessing to be a part of bringing people back together that we might be faithful, that you in turn would be faithful to us? Not only that, he gives this final note that he was just a cupbearer to the king. He's saying, how would I be the one that God would use this way? He hadn't been there. He had no relevant experience. He had never built walls or gates before, but he couldn't shake this question. What if I was made for this moment? I know that this question, it shakes all of us, right? Maybe it feels a, a unique sense of relevance for you in this moment. I hope it does. Maybe for you, you feel like you're just an engineer to the Zuckerberg. Maybe you're just a product owner to the Google or a free Uber driver to your kids or a student to the class. It is so easy to minimize what God can do. But Nehemiah was learning something so important. He was leaning on the promise of who God was and what he said he would do for his people. And you know, the thing is, um, I think one of the places that the church in America has gotten in trouble over the last few years is we have conflated the promises of Israel for America. And while this promise isn't for us, the principle is, and it's such good news. As a matter of fact, the principle is that if as followers of Jesus, we repent, God will restore. Not because we're so cute or capable, although all of you are, <laughs> but because 2,000 years ago, the God of the universe sent his only son, fully God and fully man, to live a perfect life that you and I couldn't, died the death that we deserve, and come back from the grave as our only hope now and forever. And here's the thing, it's actually better than the promise that Nehemiah was referring to. It's better. The principle of this calls you and me to an eternal kingdom ruled by an eternal king 
that we get to experience eternal citizenship of if we will repent, confess, and believe. The authors of the New Testament were so confident of God's work in this way, of an eternity that we would get to spend with him because of it. They called death sleep. That's how confident they were to put their hope in Jesus entirely. But we live in a culture that if we look close enough to, I think we grieve like Nehemiah did. And I think God does too. On one level, we have an increasingly secularized culture that, according to author Mark Sayers, wants the kingdom without the king. And even though it's really easy for us sometimes to feel helpless and frustrated about that, to be looking for excuses to disengage, that can also create a blind spot for us where the church in America pursues the same kinds of things, just with different goals. The church in America is seeking to slice up the compassion and conviction of Jesus in ways that Jesus never gave us license to do. Adam's been talking to us for the last couple weeks about bringing our true self as followers of Jesus. Jesus brought his true self. Jesus will always leave us a little politically homeless if we view our life and our politics through the lens of our faith rather than the other way around. The question, right, of what if I was made for this moment? It's what led Nehemiah to the work ahead of rebuilding the walls and seeing the prominence of God's people in a way that no one ever expected before and setting the historic table for the eventual arrival of our Messiah. And it's what led our family, that same question, what if I was made for this moment, into this conversation over the last few months together and even here with you this weekend. Our family is so incredibly special to me, and I'm truly thankful for them. I want to give you just a little bit of an update. If you don't, uh, if you haven't seen them or know anything about me, we have four kids that are fun and smart and kind, and I have a wife that I adore and feel so honored to share life with, and a dog that I did not want, but I tolerate in our home. (laughs) He's, He's joking. He's not joking. That's true. Uh, My wife, Alyssa, grew up as a pastor's kid and is the smartest person I know. Valedictorian of her high school class, uh, took Greek in grad school for fun, is really strong, could break me in half. She's incredible. Uh, I have to say that, just so you know. Um, My oldest son, Grayer, he loves uh, anything tech-related. My daughter, Maisie, loves theater, music, and art. My son, Leo, is always collecting something and exploring. And Wells, our (laughs) three-year-old, I'll just say you can't miss him. He is a... A wild little dude. We love him a lot. Now, um, this family is not the family of origin that I have. It's not the family that I grew up with. Uh, My parents grew up in California. My mom is a first-generation American who was raised Jewish and became a Christian uh, in her young adult years. And my dad was given up by his mom at birth and never knew his dad. And they were doing the very best they could as I was growing up, but our home had uh, trauma and abuse in it. And pretty early on, surviving that abuse became a primary goal of my childhood. As a matter of fact, this is the last photo of my family that I have altogether, and it was taken at our wedding more than 16 years ago. It's my whole family except for one sibling. See, one of my brothers became so desperate that when he was 16 and I was eight, he left home for 15 years. We thought he died. And while years later he would resurface through pretty miraculous means and we've been able to maintain relationship, it's been incredible, Uh, it was a time that God used something that felt so disorienting and so devastating to call me into ministry and to confirm this relationship that I had with him from a very young age. It was something that God used to grow strength in me. 
And here's the thing, every place that I've had a chance to go and serve in ministry, I've had a chance to go somewhere that has, has needed care and help transitioning past a very difficult and painful transition. And all of this was the backdrop as we considered Menlo Church over these last few months. And I kept asking that little question we've been thinking about together. I wonder though, how often do we forget that the God who made us also placed us in the spaces and places and the time in history that we live in our lives? He even uses the hard and painful places of our past to prepare us for our future. Now, I'm not excusing or dismissing my pain and trauma from childhood, even though the trauma, uh, even like the last couple years of trauma and pain of trying to lead through COVID, you guys had that out here too, right? <laughs> I see a counselor regularly. I have close friends that I feel like the Lord uses often to remind me of who I am and who he is in the midst of difficulty. But what about you? What's your story? Are there trends or patterns that you have written off as coincidences? But if you look closer, you might discover like Nehemiah that these patterns around you have become priorities inside you that God wants to use to connect you to him and to help you make a difference in the world. It would have been so easy for that last line of Nehemiah's prayer when he says amen, when he says I'm just a cupbearer to the king, for him to just stop for him to ignore the nudge of God, to do something about something that God had broken his heart about. And you might just be a venture capitalist to the startup, a retiree to the grandkids or the great-grandkids, but God puts you in this place at this time for a reason, whether you believe it or not. Can I share an annoyance that I have with you? You have to promise not to share it with anybody, past the campuses and online and stuff like, we're just, we're all going to keep a secret, okay? I see this story of Nehemiah and it resonates with me, but I'm also hearing plenty of people all around the country who are followers of Jesus, that because of places that they live all around the country, they are moving, they are physically relocating to places that have greater political, cultural, and comfort, compatibility with their preferences, and it breaks my heart. See, for people who are not followers of Jesus, I totally get it. Why, why wouldn't you seek the most comfortable life? But for those of us who know and follow Jesus, and we long for other people who are close to us and far from God to know the same, how can we do this? If God has placed us in this place at this moment for a purpose, how could we run from that? Now, I hope this isn't new for you, but your calling from God is rarely compatible with the calling of our culture for greater and greater comfort that will never be satisfied. As a matter of fact, the harder you run on the path towards your own comfort, oftentimes the harder you are running from God's calling for your life and eternal impact. And so when we think back to the story, as a matter of fact, just before the, the best and the brightest were taken from Jerusalem, there was a king in Judah named Josiah who chose not to run. He followed awful kings, and he had no frame of reference for what obedience even looked like. But he actually rediscovered the Hebrew scriptures, like he found them. And he shared God's countercultural vision for his people in a way that showed that when God says do, he means he designed you that way. And when God says don't, he means don't hurt yourself. And it was revolutionary for the people who were hearing it at the time. He chose. He chose to believe that God made him for the moment. Menlo Church, you have been served so well by the pastors and ministry team here 
to continue to point you to the unchanging character of God in a thoughtful and engaging way. Don't ever stop. In a darkening world, that can, you need to continue to lovingly shine the light of convictions and compassion that we learn and experience from Jesus together. So finally, let's talk about the next chapter here at Menlo Church together. Did you know that Menlo Church that exists across many locations today is nearly 150 years old? And that it almost closed twice in its first 70 years. As a matter of fact, shortly after World War I, there was a time when there were only nine members. Isn't that crazy? Although I will say that getting quorum probably would have been a lot easier back then. <laughs> and if you're like, did he just make a church polity joke? I sure did. Sure did. <laughs> but Menlo is a very unique place. You know that. It sits in one of the most religiously disaffiliated places in our nation with most people who have either walked away from faith or never meaningfully considered it in the first place. Menlo Church, you have been so resilient. And what I've seen over and over again to encourage you is that churches that have prioritized continuing to be faithful in the midst of difficult times, well, today there may be smaller numbers of people who show up in person. I promise you, I promise you, the impact that those churches are making is greater and their future is brighter than ever before. And I think that the invitation to Menlo Church is for us to innovate like never before. Menlo Church has a beautiful history of innovating and creating in places and spaces to care for people in need and to be known more for what we're for than what we're against. That's actually been the best of the church throughout all of history. Nehemiah built walls to protect God's people, but if you think about it, the challenge of the church is exactly the opposite. The challenge of the church for us today is how do we tear down the walls that separate the hurting of this world from the hope of heaven? I wonder, has someone ever given you a photocopy, like a, a copy of something that you can instantly tell is not an original? The lines on it are faded. The pictures are blurred. You can tell that this is a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. And how often does it feel in church in America? that the very best of what we have is just a copy of a copy of a copy of the, what the world offers today. But the thing is, it wasn't always this way. We call it the Renaissance. There was a time when the church was known as a pioneer in art, architecture, science, history, da Vinci, Michelangelo, Raphael. And obviously no one is perfect, and this time in history was not perfect, but followers of Jesus created things. They pioneered, they took risks. They weren't waiting for the cues from someone else. They were leading the way. Now, the church in America is very often known more for what we're against than what we are for. We are known for who we are trying to cancel next rather than what we are creating now. But it doesn't have to be that way. What if we were known as being for the bay in a way that made things and pioneered again? The new renaissance, rooted in historically orthodox, robust theology, thoughtful and nuanced spiritual formation, and engaging expositional teaching. I believe that those aspects of the legacy of Menlo Church are the things that we need into the future. What if, like the early church, we were making things so helpful and so unique that people's categories of Christians couldn't be reconciled in contrast with their experiences with us? Even if they didn't believe like us, they were glad that we were in communities because we were making them better. What if the new renaissance leveraged technology, not simply to mirror or photocopy a version of what the world was doing, 
but to use social media, artificial intelligence, augmented reality, virtual reality, and compelling production environments. And all the best of what people at Menlo Church are doing right now in their marketplace job to help people extend the life of Jesus to the hurting and dying in our world. So sure, you could move. You could chase comfort and political and moral compatibility wherever you want. But I want you to keep asking that question. What if you weren't here on accident? What if you were made for this moment? See, maybe you'll realize that in all of human history, the God of the universe placed you right here, right now, for the mission that God has been pursuing for 2,000 years and that Menlo Church has been pursuing for nearly 150. We are so consumed with intractable political fights and tribal theological fights that the mission that really matters has often been neglected. But all of that was true before. And the church offered a counterformation to Jesus' followers. It can again. It must again. Menlo Church, let's do it together. Will you commit with me to join the legacy of the very best of this church, to stand on the shoulders of giants before us, to use the best of what we have and who we are and whose we are to not only grow ourselves closer to Jesus, but to see people close to us and far from God find and follow Jesus too. Can I pray for you? God, thank you so much. Thank you for the legacy of this place. Some of that legacy is represented by people in this room, some people who have gone on to heaven. Would you help us even today to walk in the faithfulness of that legacy, to see the fruitfulness of your work through your people, make a difference in your world, that God, even in a world that sometimes feels like it doesn't want anything to do with you, would you wake up hearts, wake up families all across the Bay Area and beyond to be able to hear from the voice of heaven in the quiet of their heart, to turn to you, to know you, to experience you. For those discouraged, for those frustrated, God, would you bring them encouragement today? Remind them that your story is not a new one and that, God, our story gets to be a part of that one when we tie it to you. God, and even now, as we're reminded of your goodness in our life, of just how consistently you, good you have been, shape our perspective for the days ahead, for the weeks ahead, for the challenges that we are going through or that we don't yet see but you do to be able to trust you in deeper ways because of it. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.